You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the final event from Framing Aging, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. This hybrid conference took place on the 2nd and 3rd of December 2021 in UCD Humanities Institute and featured 15 speakers across seven panels. Framing Aging is supported by Welcome Trust. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from all our previous events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie. This episode features Panel 7, Vulnerability. The speakers were Katie Featherstone from the University of West London, who presented on Pad Cultures, Routines of Intimate Care and Their Consequences for People Living with Dementia, and Ulla Krieberneg from the University of Graz, who presented on Growing Old Amid Climate Change, Dystopian Narratives of Vulnerability and Resistance. Um, I haven't spoken much in terms of commenting on papers, but... I've just been soaking it up. It's been fabulous. I've learned so much. Um, interdisciplinarity is the way forward. It's finding those people that actually connect and actually push the work. I find there's a lot of things I can't say as a sociologist of medicine that actually I'm feeling you're helping me to see ways, new ways of seeing, new ways of being that actually I think, yeah, I hope we can collaborate in future. Um, I'm going to skip to, skip to this slide, which I should have put straight away, which after the, after the session yesterday, I suppose I really started to think about, just to find a, a piece of data that I thought encapsulated an awful lot of what we've been talking about and that's been coming through. And to be honest, it didn't take me long to find this quote because it's in the report on continence care that's coming out in February. And I'm really pleased because actually Department of Health have fast-tracked the report. Um, and it, it's very easy to find this, but I think there's so much going on here in terms of um, abjectivity, representation, continence. And can I just say that I've, I don't think I've been to any conference where continence has come up so much as, a, as an issue. And actually, you know, and, it, it's, uh, and again, invisibility, visibility. You know, people don't talk about this stuff. And actually, the, the first paper that I, I wrote on continents called the, um, the Canary in the Coal Mine, um, I wrote it because I thought nobody's going to ever give me funding to do this. Nobody's ever going to give me that space. And it was, it was from a, a point of I've got to get this out about continents as a moment of so important for personhood, identity, being seen, being, um, being seen by others, but also seeing yourself as a person. Um, and that's also how, why I'm here, because Des very kindly emailed me and said that he enjoyed the paper. And that was a really, really important moment for me as well, as someone in the, being welcomed into the, into the interdisciplinary world. Um, so, yeah, so um, the hidden, the invisible, surveillance and risk, the materiality of the body, time in institutions, classification the precariousness 
of the person. I think this comes through here. The woman in bed seven gets up and out of bed and tidies round her bedside, picking up bits of paper from the floor. She's wearing a hospital gown and a large wraparound pad is very visible. So this is a, it's basically a massive nappy, adult nappy. She suddenly holds onto her crotch, heads into the bathroom and locks the door. So this real sense of her embodied experience of continence. Um, she heads to the bathroom and locks the door. Again, and we have lots of surveillance here as well, I think. So the healthcare assistant comments to me, she's very secretive. She doesn't like anyone looking at her bits and pieces. I think this is also a really a, a massive theme that we found in our analysis, actually. Bodily parts are not mentioned in hospital wards. They are referred to as bits and pieces down below. <laughs> yeah? Anatomically, they're never talked about. So it's always these euphemisms, which also are very difficult for people necessarily to, to understand, but again, makes it very, very silenced, very silenced experience. She then tells me about another patient she's cared for, a lovely lady, very independent. She wouldn't let anyone look at her downstairs at all. Um, I will eat. Then she talks about the, the other lady again. I will leave her in there for a bit and then use the scissors to turn the lock from the outside and check on her. I will just have a quick look. So she's hovering at the door and she uses the scissors to unlock the door from the outside. The woman is standing at the door and she closes it and locks it to leave the HCA outside. The HCA turns to me. It's not nice, but they fall when you're not watching. The sense of surveillance, events of risk, risk management... And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been um, in a public toilet and you're not sure the lock's working, <laughs> do you ever feel any anxiety about that? Always. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the feeling of not being able to get to the bathroom in time or not having access to any bathrooms. If, that, you know, if I shut that door and said, actually, we've got, um, we've got a screen over there and there's a commode behind it. Can everybody just, you know, do, use that? We actually, you know, my, 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 the team I work with do want to do that as an experiment one day. A pile of nappies and um, a commode behind, <laughs> behind the screen where we can hear everything. <laughs> because that's the reality of a hospital ward, a life in a hospital ward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, we've got so much data that it was very easy for me to find that Example, just on the kind of almost the, the, the second page of our report. But um, just to give you a slight overview, I think this is, goes back to some of the talk about the kind of the catastrophization of dementia and aging. And absolutely, this is a, a big um, population in our hospitals, but it's also seen as a population that is growing and that we need to do something about. It shouldn't be there. So, again, that kind of othering. Um, these are also people living with dementia who tend to be early, mid-stage of the dementia or are seen as a group who are probably undiagnosed. But actually, we just don't know the numbers of people living with dementia or people who are diagnosed appropriately in the acute setting or not. It's a very movable feast. Um, these are typically unplanned admissions, but also for potentially preventable conditions so and treatable conditions as well. So people should be... 
going into the acute setting, let's say with a, an infection, a fractured hip, they should be being cared for by the, the experts in those hospital wards and returning home. However, the hospital where things can go horribly wrong. So this group are also, well, one of the biggest in the hospitals, are also at risk of having the worst outcomes. Really higher short-term mortality, um, and um, really hospitals are now seen as a really a dangerous place for the, for the older person, the person living with dementia. And it goes back to that sense of deterioration as well within the acute setting, the iatrogenic impacts of the hospital itself. So what's been the NHS response? Well, I think it goes back to something of the issues we've talked, <laughs> talked about over the last couple of days, classification, a focus on differences. This is a really old, old form of medicine, the classification of um, patients by particular attributes. So we have care of the elderly, we have um, uh, rapid assessment, we have cognitive impairment wards, we have frailty wards, and we have the dementia-friendly wards, which again talks to what we've also talked about um, in, in the conference around um, the, um, uh, the um, sorry, I can't, I can't even read my own notes now. I've made so many notes, I can't read them. Um, the... Um, uh, the stereotyping of older people. So the dementia-friendly ward focuses on signage and refurbishment of the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, it's always that era. During the Second World War, 1950s, a sense of a halcyon era where it was the good life of some sort. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. And I think that's, you know, we've got to really challenge that one. So that's... that's um, we also have an NHS response which is about outsourcing. So rather than supporting staff in wards to um, develop skills, a lot of it is around um, outsourcing of skills to specialist teams, very small teams, low-paid teams as well, um, and lots of identification and awareness schemes. So again, back to classification. So um, uh, identifying people with use of purple slippers, socks, this-is-me forms, um, uh, badges at the bedside depicting dementia. And we have written a paper on that as well, which I, I find very interesting. But I think these sorts of interventions come from a very a place of um, uh, trying to do the right thing. But again, they're around classifying older people in particular ways. And this causes problems. So what we have is these interventions going in towards, but actually just bouncing off, because what we know as well about ward cultures is they're very resistant places. Interventions, traditional interventions, just bounce off. And we get this reversion to, this is what we do here. This is how we, is it, care is expected to be. So if we're going to try and change these, or rather support staff within these acute wards, we really have to think about and really understand work as done rather than work as imagined by institutions, by governments, and really look at the social organisation of care and its consequences now. So what have we done? Well, um, our first study looked at resistance and refusal of care, and during that study, that's when we really started to, to notice continence care it was so invisible, but every day, I'd be standing with my notebook looking at a, um, 
uh, a bay, and all I would see would be staff passing with bedpans, with pads, trolleys of pads everywhere, um, people going to the sluice room, the sluice room always a closed area. So, but nobody talks about this. They'd just be trying to negotiate with, you know, full pans of piss, trying to, you know, covered precariously to, towards the, the sluice room and back again. But nobody talks about it. Very, very silencing. And also very silencing for patients as well. People found it very difficult to, to articulate the need to go to the, to the toilet or needing continence care. So that really spurred on, actually, we need to look at this. I think that's something that, as a group, we're all doing as well here, is actually looking at these, um, the materiality of life, but also the very silent bits of life, the bits that nobody else wants to look at, is what we, as a community, are really good at doing. But actually, this is, this is the heart of it all. I've spent 360 days of observational field work in hospitals across... England and Wales. Um, the studies always involve people living with dementia, families, and they are interdisciplinary, although I think now with you guys I'm starting to really understand that that needs to be really expanded. Um, I didn't really talk much about continence care in wandering the wards, but there's so much more to be, to be written about life in wards. So, yeah, so that quote again, which I think really just says it all. So what do we find? I think the interesting thing for us was that we really identified pad cultures as an embedded practice within these wards. So what does that mean? Well, we found the routine use of continence pads in the care of people living with dementia, but also this expanded to a really wide group. So while... There was a um, presentation of the wards as using continence pads for people living with dementia who were seen as incontinent. Actually, they were used for everybody. So we got this um, contagion and spread of continence pads used for every older person in the ward. The rationale for that was very much around uh, preventing accidents, um, supporting people, um, uh, that sense of um, they were doing it for the right reasons. People might have accidents, might not be able to get to the bathroom in time. Um, but actually, again, we had an, a massive contagion of understanding. And the use of pads in that way meant that um, there was an expectation, which was often very articulated by staff, that people not only wear the pad, but use the pad. So rather than saying to somebody, um, I will get you to the bathroom in a minute, it was, you don't need to go to the bathroom, you're in a pad. Now, this was a rationale that was not about individual staff members, but very much around the cultures of these wards. We found this culture in all the wards bar one, where it was kind of patchy, depending on who was, who was in the wards at the time, in terms of staffing. But these, cult these cultures were really embedded into the practice, a way for staff to keep pace, 
um, goes back to the time and timetables, the, 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 expect, the feeling of the expected pace and demands of the institution, that people must not fall behind, that people must keep going. This approach also meant that actually and lots of interventions to support continent care also got transformed. So we had these interventions such as prompted voiding, which is about going to the bedside and prompt people to see if they want to go to the bathroom, actually turned into a form of management of the continence pad at the bedside. So it was about checking pads, checking for wetness, rather than and whether people needed changing, rather than a walking someone to the bathroom. But it was very much around keeping pace with the timetables. We also saw that the use of pads also had a wider impact on on other practices in supporting people with dementia. So, for example, even though there's a, a big push in the UK towards to um, dress people in their everyday clothes, actually there was a powerful reversion to use of gowns because, of, again, gowns give access to pads, but also pads, if used, actually don't um, function as designed. They spill, they are messy. So... It's also about ease of actually just cleaning people. So that kind of personal care also led to use of, of gowns. So that was also kind of very much normalised in, the, um, in these wards. And again, at least that reclassification of the person. So we got this sense that actually um, wards and bays of patients would become seen as being incontinent, but also having less capacity. Once you're in a pad, you're seen as less of a person, but also we could see in our data actually people diminished as well. They felt less of a person when they were in that, in that position. I'm really seeing everybody's highly dependent. So again, rather than independently eating, people seen as needing feeding. That could quickly become that transformation um, and again, you know, walking to the bathroom could be problematised rather than seen as somebody <laughs> wanting independently to walk to the bathroom. It could quickly become classified as someone wandering without purpose and um, really seen also as, as a risk and actually risk that didn't need to be taken because someone was wearing a pad. And independent walking could also could be easily classified as, um, as wandering, but also a sign of confusion and to be at a high risk. People living with dementia and the older people in the wards often experienced high levels of distress in terms of the continence care they received if they were wearing pads, but also the intimate care that that also entailed. If we think about the earlier quote with the bits and pieces and down below... That, that sort of language made it very hard for people to understand what was going to happen to them in terms of the intimate care they were experiencing. That could lead to a lot of distress. We could see that in our data because we were there over time following the social processes and consequences of this. For staff, they didn't have the time to see those processes. So it's very much seen as uh, people um, displaying aggression if they were refusing that kind of care which again leads to that reclassification. So, and again, forms of embodied communication 
People found it very difficult to talk about their continence needs, but if they were looking uncomfortable and needed to go to the bathroom, which you could really see embodied, if you, take, if you have the time to see that. Obviously, staff didn't always have the time to see that. You could start to see those features. However, for the wards, that could also become a feature of a sign of dementia, rather than an underlying bodily need. Urgency was really hard for, for staff to deal with. So staff's needs were also really, really invisible in these wards. Staff described continence care as a heavy burden, a heavy load. They felt very, very isolated and invisible in this work, which had very, very low status. Staff also expressed the view that they really wanted to work in different ways, but felt unable to. They felt the institutional pressure meant they couldn't work in other ways. And I think you could extend this to see that as a form of symbolic violence for staff in the wards, in that they really felt a lot of the work they were doing was not the work they wanted to do. They didn't see it as optimal care or how they wanted to be. So timetables and pace is really, really key, key here. Pad cultures that we saw was never a malicious act by a member of staff. It was a really a solution, a workaround to complete the pace and delivery. The kind of it was felt, but you know, expected. It was really kind of that, that kind of felt experience of um, of expectation of demands and pace of the ward cultures and delivery of essential care. So um, I think these workarounds are really interesting points in ward life and the timetables. How people get through the day have consequences for them as staff members, but also for for their patients. There was a strong, strong fear of falling behind. This, you know, and this kind of this feeling, this fear of falling behind, kind of escalates during the day. There are definite points when that becomes really manifest in, in wards, and that's also at points where continence care or thinking about independence for patients and continence care was absolutely dropped dramatically. That's when that became no priority at all and other things came to the fore. Organisational invisibility. There was really no indication in any of these institutions that continence care was seen as critical or important for care quality. There was very little recognition of practices around continence care as significant for the person or, for, or was, a, was a significant feature of, of care work. So it really was very invisible in these wider settings. Even though in the wards you could, it, was, it was everywhere, it actually had no status and really was very little talked about. And in fact, the language of the person to the to the person around bits and pieces was language that was very much reflected in um, staff meetings as well. So handover meetings would use the same sorts of language as staff would use to patients, which also made those those um, that care very invisible. Um, we're trying to work with wards. So, so sorry, it's rather a bleak picture. We did see some some good practice, which really was when when the pace was felt to be could be dropped. When actually people worked at a slower pace and that was seen as acceptable, that's when we started to see a more supportive environment in terms of continence care and time to take people to the bathroom. 
walking to the bathroom or supporting someone to, to the bathroom was often seen as taking a huge amount of time. It was a very anxious moment for staff. It would take up too much time to do that work. Um, so that's why it, be it becomes drops. But once you had a ward where there was a slower pace and that was seen as promoted, actually that's when those sorts of um, care work w was allowed and flourished. But again, very, very patchy. So at the moment, we're work I'm working with um, some of the wards and hospitals that we were in to really think about how we could change this. Interestingly, we all recognised the findings. All the wards that we were in and the hospitals really recognised our analysis. But I think that's just the first part of the process. We then have to really help to support them. Um, the next thing we're going to look at is restraint, because I think also if we think about use of pads, keeping people at the bedside, we might be able to consider that as a form of restrictive practice and the consequences of that. But that's part of, again, it's kind of part of a larger picture of restrictions of people in the acute setting. Who is permitted to do what? So there are lots around permissions as well and restrictions that really focus on the older person and the older body. So the thing, you, you, it's almost, um, there's a great, um, in one of the 1950s ethnographies, there's a great little quote which says, Mrs. Rosenstein, Rosenstein was unrestricted in her movements. It's an unusual example. So in our wards, older people were always restricted. They always had to seek permission. So I think for me, that's, that's the, the older body in the hospital is, yeah, whereas young people can stride up and down in their underpants and nobody will give them a second glance. But an older person is wondering. Um, and I'm going to, I'm also interested in classification as well, which is, I think, something we're going to look at next. And that's it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Katie. Actually, I think we, we want to discuss your paper now and not have something entirely different. But I guess that's the rules of the conference, and maybe we can bring those papers in conversation later on. But before I start, I'd like to acknowledge my co-author co here, Anna-Christina Keinradl, is a PhD student of ours working at our center, at the newly founded center. And we wrote this together as a larger piece that is coming out in one of the Bloomsbury handbooks. And also, I'd, I'd like to thank Sarah Falkus and Heike Hartung and Raquel Medina for their thoughtful comments on another extended version of this text where we also tackle... Today, I'll talk a little bit about Margaret Atwood that I've already introduced to you, the story Torching the Dusties, a year ago. So I'd like to pick that up again and, and do another interpretation of that. But we also talk about Lucy Kirkwood's The Children, a play... That's also dystopian. I will not tackle this, but this larger text that you can then access does start. All right. So current debates about the global uh, climate crisis do not primarily focus on questions about age and aging. Yet age as a category of difference has begun to appear more and more in discussions who is responsible, about who is responsible for anthropogenic climate change and the measures to be taken to combat it. Global warming and its consequences for an aging population have also become increasingly relevant for scholars in the field of aging studies 
who have begun to analyze fictional representations of what it means to grow old in the Anthropocene. And that's Kathleen Woodward who has worked about this. Here are some examples about um, aging narratives that also talk about um, climate change in a way, or dystopian narratives, crisis narratives. Exploring cultural representations of crisis and change, fictional and scholarly texts address the complex dynamics of individual and collective agency, oppression and dependency, care, vulnerability and resistance, as well as intergenerationality and responsibility. As this paper aims to show, these dynamics often crystallize in dystopian imaginations of climate change. Dystopian fictions of the past decades, according to Sarah Falkus, quote, are inherently concerned with the exploration of lateness in the form of what Frank Kermode calls the sense of an ending, an expression of apocalyptic thinking through writing and reading, unquote. Using threatening feelings of lateness and precarity, Sarah Falkus argues, Dystopian fiction points to both species and planetary vulnerability while at the same time presenting the possibility of change, alerting readers to the possibility that devastation and crisis may be avoided. Both discursive fields, that of aging and demographic change and that of climate change, share similar dynamics. Both are staged as discourses of risk, in the sense of Beck, of Kuno, of Julia Hoides, and they call for responsible action concerning the future, on an individual as well as on a societal level. Images of crisis, decay, and death threaten us into responsible behavior, as Stephen Katz and Bob Marshall have pointed out, because we seem to be taken in by the fallacy that we can avoid or at least control aging and similarly climate change. Axel Goodbody emphasizes the fear of not being able to control nature when he argues from an ecocritical perspective that, quote, climate change has, come, has become the principal focus for worries about the continuing limitations of our ability to control nature despite modern science and technology and about our physical weakness, vulnerability, and mortality. On a metaphorical level, Discourses on aging and climate change emerged and blurred by the metonymic shift of desiccation, destruction, and death from the source, what literary studies scholars call vehicle, of global warming to the target, the tenor of the aging body and society. Age is spatialized and represented as dystopia, literally a bad place, its threat intersecting with the imagery of a destroyed planet. Falkus offers an insightful way of describing this menace. Threats to the future, and by extension, therefore, our ways of imagining the future, are both inextricably linked to and metonymically represented by generational disorder and by figures of aging. Our sense of an ending, therefore, depends upon and foregrounds narratives of aging and generational identity, making aging itself fundamental to dystopian writing. Unquote. This paper aims at contributing to this field primarily from an aging studies perspective, revealing the interconnectedness of both discourses in order to work towards intergenerational solidarity in, the, in combating climate change. As Kathy Woodward has suggested, we are trying to bring together the fields of critical age studies and humanistic studies of climate change, 
feels that to her knowledge, I quote, have not been in conversation with each other yet. So we're trying to do this. Although she does not explicitly mention eco-criticism, she implicitly addresses its central tenets, namely the analysis of the, quote, relationship between literature and the physical environment. That's in a nutshell the definition of eco-criticism by Glotfelty. And we do that by asking the question, and that's Cathy Woodward again, how can we deploy the categories of young and old and the heuristic of generational time with its affective power to deepen our understanding of the gravity of climate change and the peril we and others in the biosphere face, unquote. Analyzing Atwood's short story, Torching the Dusties, we will deal with its disastrous metaphors of aging and climate change, looking for revealing intersections between descriptions of individual and societal aging and unsettling and disturbing climate change imagery. Dealing carelessly and irresponsibly with the resources of both one's own body and the planet, such metaphors suggest inevitably culminates in disaster. On a societal level, an aging population is represented as dangerous for the survival of the planet, as ageist metaphors such as the silver tsunami uh, show. Andrea Cherise has written about it um, very beautifully. And finally, in a lot of stories, gerontocide is more or less explicitly suggested as a solution, satirically or not, but gerontocide is a big topic there. So now briefly, oh, sorry, that was Woodward. Uh, Torching the Dusties, I've talked about that, that's the... Um, the short story by Artwood from 2014 uh, that appeared in The Stone Mattress as the closing tale. It follows Wilma and Tobias, two companions trapped, restrained, basically, inside Ambrosia Manor, an upscale gated retirement community that is besieged by a violent mob, an anti-older people movement called Our Turn. Members of the movement operate internationally in large numbers. And the story says they say millions are rising up. They gather at nursing homes wearing baby masks with the intention to literally torch the dusties. They set care homes on fire. Sorry, this is a little, a little early. They set care homes on fire all across America seeking, they announce, to clear away the dust balls under the bed. Public discourse here has shifted towards a normalization of the old as other. The story that appeared as the closing tale of Stone Mattress is set in a pre-apocalyptic world that is characterized by the effects of heat waves and tidal floods. Against this backdrop, backdrop, the old are positioned as scapegoats for the disastrous state of the world and become a new target group of a life-threatening form of ageism. They are seen as an economic and social challenge and are blamed for having destroyed the earth, causing climate change with their selfish and irresponsible behavior. And here's a quote from the story. And that's a radio talk show that Wilma and Tobias, the two protagonists, listen to. There is rage out there. And yes, it's sad that some of the most vulnerable in society are being scapegoated. But this turn of affairs is not without precedent in history. And in many societies, says the anthropologist, the elderly used to bow out gracefully to make room for, the, for young mouths by walking into the snow or being carried up mountainsides and left there. But that was when there were a few material resources, says the economist. All the demographics are actually big job creators. Unquote. So as this passage shows, the burden narrative of old age and the resulting intergenerational conflicts 
are explained as an anthropological constant almost. The talk show pits young against old as the anthropologist and the economist debate the actions of our turn. Remarkably, it is a student of the humanities who calls in to argue that gerontocyte might be a solution because old people are eating up the healthcare dollars, as he says, and the economist who interrupts the student to observe that is all very well, but innocent lives are being lost. To which the anthropologist counters, that depends on what you call innocent. This passage can be seen as a tipping point in the story at which readers understand that the old have irreversibly been discursively framed as other, which legitimizes our turn's violent behavior. Stephen Katz has argued that the origins of the discourse of a crisis of capacity, as Therese also calls it, can be traced back to the 19th century when the older population was constituted in, quote, Malthusian-tinged alarmist debates, unquote, as a subject of knowledge and politics. They quote again from Stephen Katz that this subject of knowledge that accentuated the growing number, neediness, and poverty of elderly persons as a primary social problem, unquote. In the story... This discourse is taken up and amplified by old people's collective guilt for the disastrous state of the world. As such, the discourse does not only refer to the sheer existence and growing number of old people, but to their individual behavior, which is described as being careless, ignorant, and harmful. The irresponsible use of resources is exemplified in the story when Wilma admits that her macular degeneration is a result of her hedonistic, excessive, and luxurious lifestyle in earlier days. And um, she says, or the, yeah, the story goes, too much golf without sunglasses, and then there was the sailing. You get a double dose of the rays from the reflection off the water. But who knew anything then? The sun was supposed to be good for you, a healthy tan. They'd covered themselves in baby oil, fried themselves like pancakes, the dark, slick, fricasseed finish looked so good on the legs against white shorts. This is like the skin thing for me. This is, this is we'll talk yesterday. Um, macular degeneration. Macular sounds so immoral. The opposite of immaculate. I'm a degenerate, she used to quip right after she'd received the diagnosis. So many brave jokes once. Wilma here addresses her infirmities not only as a result of old age, but also on a moral level. It's through the description of her bodily ailments that she makes sense of her younger behavior. Again, the central topics of the story, guilt, responsibility, and justice, are negotiated via her aging body. Wilma's body decay, bodily decay results from using too much on the individual level, just as the overuse of resources is contributing to an environmental disaster on a collective level. As in Atwood's other work, her use of sarcasm as a means of social critique is evident. Her tale problematizes the way in which old age is othered, stigmatized as, stigmatized as useless, inefficient, and burdensome. The old are positioned as scapegoats for the disastrous state of the world, as Tobias reports of our turn. They say it's their turn, says Tobias. Their turn at what? At life, they say. They say we've had our turn, those our age. They say we messed it up, killing the planet with our own greed and so forth. Just as descriptions of the aging body, parallel descriptions of climate change, 
The reasons for these catastrophic developments are also paralleled. Ignorance is given as a reason in both cases, and the destruction of the planet, which happened not on purpose, is parallel to the careless treatment of her own youthful body. But who knew anything then, she said, uh, Wilma. According to Tobias, the young activists wear baby masks to emphasize their own innocence. Chubby, smiling babies. Some say, time to go. The baby masks serve to highlight the extreme binary opposition between young and old that the story presents as another normalized discourse. The appeal of the figure of the child lies in its power to, and I'm quoting here, lies um, from Falkus, lies in its power to awaken our nostalgic identification with innocence and promises a future minus anything that currently disturbs the body politic, unquote. It's thus a figure of futurity that is set off against old age as a, quote, figure of the past, as an embodiment of burden and guilt. As Margaret Goulet explains in Ending Ageism, or How Not to Shoot Old People, the othering of old people can lead to scapegoating. And she writes, people tend to distance themselves from individuals or groups that frighten them. Fear can be taught, heightened, or redirected. After World War II, against communists, after 9-11, Muslims, today immigrants, social identity and terror management theories informed by age theory explain how fear can be manipulated against old people, a handy new group to target, unquote. Atwood's story deals with scapegoating and carries it to the extremes. Her text positions old age as a peculiar kind of other in the context of climate change, and Andrea Cherise illustrates how the perceived threats of demographic change and climate change result and converge in a metaphorical language of disaster. And Cherise writes, this ominous, ominous rhetoric of rising, swamping tides and disease, amplified by the authoritative tone of medical and health policy expertise, conceives of population aging as an imminent catastrophe. Conceived en masse, the elderly are naturalized as a liquid cataclysm whose volume exceeds the nation's ability to contain or even guard against an abstracted human burden, unquote. So the social and economic burden is reinforced through the imagery of environmental threat, both on a collective level as well as on the level of aging individuals. I'm coming to my conclusion here now. Um, and as the text shows metaphors of climate change and aging overlap and have a mutually reinforcing effect. The catastrophic imagery of draft, catastrophe and destruction describes both nature affected by anthropogenic climate change as well as old people and their aging bodies on an individual level. The metaphor of the parasitic dead wood at the top equates the threat to a tree's healthy growth to old people being a burden and hindering the progress of a healthy society. Metaphors reinforcing a binary opposition of old and young in representations of apocalyptic conflict lead to even more stigmatization and an increase in burden narratives. Framing the old as scapegoats may also shift the focus away from and conceal other sociopolitical problems that need to be tackled, including social inequalities and fault lines that run throughout generations. Through the critical analysis of aesthetic representations such as dystopian stories, insights can be gained into the meaning of aging as well as its complexity, ambiguity, and contradictoriness. 
In doing so, we take a political stance with the aim, as Roberta Meyerhofer says, not only of interpreting the world, but also of redefining the relationship between text and reader, and subsequently between reader and world, through a change of consciousness. The genre of dystopian literature offers both opportunities and challenges. By raising awareness for the disastrous effects of climate change, dystopian texts might lead to a change in behavior that has a positive impact on the environment. Yet it also raises the question whether speculative fiction representing future scenarios might veil the fact that people are presently already living in climate dystopias in many places of the earth. So now really to conclude, questions of climate protection can only be answered by a collective effort, including all generations and age cohorts, in addition to radical changes in policy making and governing structures. Margaret Atwood, sorry, Margaret Atwood addresses this aspect in her famous apocalyptic essay, It's Not Climate Change, It's Everything Change, which is a dire warning against ignorance and inactivity and a call to action. Problematizing and combating anthropogenic climate change requires a change of consciousness and behavior on a larger scale, which is by no means age-dependent. Yet arguments that lead to social division through ageist discourses may undermine such efforts. Reading climate fiction through the lens of aging studies raises awareness for the discursive entanglements of guilt, responsibility, and age stereotypes. Deconstructing them creates an awareness that allows for more intergenerational understanding, offering opportunities to collaboratively rethink the future of our planet. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.